programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Little Bear Bottoms Corn Maze Haunted River Trail and Spooky Barn Ride, a family farm that turns into a Halloween event, September 28th through October 31st. Located south of Logan on the east side of Highway 8991 in Wellsville. Info at lbbcornmaze.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his latest book, Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters, Jeff Metcalf writes, These waters have been my home, and I fish them more than most. In truth, they have saved my life on more than a few occasions. I seek refuge in the quiet solitude of rivers. And in dark hours of my life, including this particular year, I need desperately to be fly fishing. Metcalf's play, A Slight Discomfort, is a humorous take on his battle with prostate cancer. And a previous award-winning collection of essays, Requiem for the Living, resulted from a challenge he gave himself when presented with a dire prognosis with his cancer, writing one essay each week for a year. Metcalf volunteers with Real Recovery, an organization that conducts retreats for men living with cancer. He says it's important for men to learn to talk about their cancers and their lives. Jeff Metcalf is a professor of English at University of Utah, and we're going to revisit our uh, June conversation from this year with Jeff Metcalf. We begin today uh, with him reading from Backcast, a passage where he uh, discovers the joys of fly fishing. I should have known what would happen next. The muse had warned me. The omens were already stuck in my face. It was the most horrible thing conceivable. I ganked the atoms, made two rather decent casts. My third cast landed on a bush lying the bank. It hung lightly on a branch, and the hook did not appear to be sunk into timber. So ever so delicately, I gave the line a twitch, and the fly alighted on the water. I didn't have time to appreciate the nuance, because instantly something silver slashed the fly and ripped into it. Here now is a sequence of what I think happened next. I screamed. I'm, I'm certain of this. I jerked my fly rod high above my head. I let go of all the line I had on in my left hand, created tremendous slack, and losing the tension on the fly, I stumbled on a rock as I stepped back in the river, lost my balance, and fell sideways into the water. I took a little water into my waders, and my heart was pumping. And when I managed to regain my footing, the fly line was spaghetti on the river, and more disappointingly, there wasn't any tension on the line. The fish was off the fly. I began reeling in the excess line when suddenly tugged and began moving upstream. The fish was still on the line. My God, I hadn't cocked it all up after all. I managed successfully to land a beautiful little rainbow trout, no more than 12 inches long. It was one of the smallest fish I'd ever landed in my life. But I can't begin to explain the sensation I felt at that moment. I figured something out, something important. I knew deep down that somehow the water would call me back and the river would remain forever in my life. So you were you were hooked, no pun intended. Oh, um, man, I was yeah. hooked. I didn't realize what a disease it would become. I wonder, <laughs> and this is a Jeff Metcalf. Jeff Metcalf, he's reading from his latest collection, Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. Um, so the, the title, Backcast, tell me about that. Yeah, it's interesting because um, when you begin to fly fish, um, 
I mean, there's a parallel to life, too, that in the back cast, everything can quickly come unhinged if you're not weighting the forward and the back cast equally, which most men don't when they're learning. It's kind of pull a line off the water and then try to get it back on as fast as possible, and it's very measured. Um, you can get a bird's nest. You can hook branches and all this sort of stuff, and I thought, this is really appropriate for life. You know, you're kind of heading one way and not paying attention to every anything behind you, and things can go south in a hurry. So it seemed like a pretty good title, and the editors thought it was fantastic. And then I tagged on the second part and other such matters, because they're really no, they're not stories about fly fishing, although I guess in many ways it runs through it. But I think they're also lessons about life and about observation of the wild. Before we get into that, I wanted to talk, keep it on the, you know, the on the nose with the with the fly fishing. By the way, you and I imagine most people would learn fly fishing with a, a mentor, a buddy. You went out alone. I think so. You you, yeah. you tried to mimic the other <laughs> fellows on the river that day. They were studiously oh, oh. ignoring you. It really looked bad. It's like throwing somebody on ice skates into this Stanley Cup that has never been on ice skates before. <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> you you and, survived uh, it. You know, over the go ahead. You survived it. I survived it, and and uh, I had no idea how it would follow me around my entire life. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you. And I'm thankful for it. Uh, it's it's been a it's been a good influence, I think, in your life. Um, it has been. Um, I wonder if you. Now, read... my wife would differ with <laughs> you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Which, what would Atlanta, your cheaper than getting a girlfriend? Trust me. <laughs> what would your wife? What does your wife say about this? You know, it's wonderful. She understands it perfectly. I mean, we're big hikers and bikers, and and we spend a lot of time in the outdoors. And you know, I don't play golf. I don't disappear on business trips. I mean, the one thing. It's just kind of sacred, and, and she's always been very supportive of it, is fly fishing. And uh, there are days when I just go, I need to be on the water. And there are no questions asked. And uh, that's a special relationship. Hmm. I can't think of many people that can say that. So I want to ask you, what is it about fly fishing versus, say, quote-unquote regular fishing? There's there's a There's a... A very nice uh, story in the in the book. You and your grandfather, where he introduces you to, you know, the casting right. with the reel. Right. It's a, you know, it, it's interesting because I honestly think most of us that fly fish began by spin fishing. It's pretty easy to do. You know, um, when I went fishing with my grandfather, it took me about five minutes to learn how, maybe more than that, to learn how to, you know, flip over the latch cast the line out, flip it back over, let it lock, and then sort of reel it into the water. Um, what I like about fly fishing, um, it demands uh, a different kind of um, attention, attention to how a water is moving, the kinds of bugs that may and may not be on the water. It, it demands that one pays attention to the natural world. Rivers change. I mean, if it's the Provo River for... Oh, I'd say 50 years now, maybe more than that, maybe 51, 52 years in the same places. I, I like to believe I know that river as, as well as anybody else, but it's always in constant change and motion, and you have to be prepared for that. I mean, you know, I mean, fishing, fly fishing, 
people say, how was fishing? And my answer is always, it was great. I think they're really asking how catching was. They're two very distinctly different questions. Mm. Fishing's always beautiful. You're in a place where you have to move up and down river, spot fish, be very stealth about it. Um, and that's not the case with spin fishing. I mean, you could stay in the same place, spin fish from a comfortable lawn chair, and hardly move at all. But um, I feel like I'm part of the natural world when I fly fish. So it's you know, if you take it as metaphor, it's it's the journey then. The fishing is it's always the good. journey. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, um, you know, I've had days that were freezing, where I knew I wouldn't catch a fish, didn't stand a chance, and that's still fine by me. You know, just being on the water, walking the water, studying what's going on, trying to imagine where fish are holding up, that's a perfect day for me. Hmm. I wonder if you could read the, uh, you have a quotation at the beginning of the book. Um, oh, yes, and, yes, yes, yes. And you've, this, you've... this was, I'd be happy to read that for yeah. you. So this is the very beginning of the book, and I saw it in a friend's cabin many, many years ago, and it just, it seems so appropriate to begin the text with. So it's, it's called Sparse Gray Hackle. If fishing interferes with your business, give up your business, any angler will tell you, citing instances of men who lost health and even life through failure to take a little recreation and reminding you that the trout do not rise in the Greenwood Cemetery. So you better do your fishing where you're still able. But you will search far to find a fisherman to admit that a taste for fishing, like a taste for liquor, must be governed lest it come to possess its possessor, that an excess of fishing can cause as many tragedy of lost purpose, earning power, and position as the excess of liquor. <laughs> I think that's... I think that's my prayer to the river every day. <laughs> it it can it can become an obsession. It can be. And it's one I can deal with on a daily basis. In fact, I'd like to deal with it on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you write about how you um you admit, you know, alcoholics anonymous style that uh that you've got a problem, quote unquote. Uh, there's a scene in the book I I love any academic will recognize this uh I don't know, is your department head or somebody said he, uh, he or she noticed that you've been missing a lot of uh, faculty meetings? Well, yes, that's the, that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then puts I it, have been guilty of that. <laughs> uh, uh, probably out fishing, I'm guessing. Yeah, you know, I, there's something wrong with my car at certain times of the year. Um, I'll be on my way to a faculty meeting and then find my car just sort of pulling me to the river. I don't know what to say about that, Tom. I, I think I have to follow the muse. <laughs> <laughs> and in this case, uh, it was one of the best days of fishing I ever had. Hmm. So what does, what, what is, you've talked a little bit about this. I wonder if you could uh, dive in a little more. What, what does fishing do for you? In fact, you say, you know, fishing is uh, being out there, being out in nature. The fishing has saved your life. Yeah, I, I think that um, maybe we talked about this before, or if I ha if I haven't done so, um, I was diagnosed uh, 15 years ago with prostate cancer and was given a 20% uh, chance of making it three years, which just didn't work out for me. I I just wasn't done 
But there have been some very, very dark moments in my journey through cancer. And I found that the place where I was able to balance myself, to find solace, to kind of rethink, um, you know, what would be coming down the road for me was always in the water. And the most beautiful thing about it was that the moment I step into a river in about less than two minutes, I forget all of that. And and it's uh, it's remarkable how I can just put that behind me for the hour, the two hours I'm there. It's interesting. I just came back from a project called Real Recovery. It's a program, Real spelled R-E-E-L, uh, and it's a program for men that have all sorts of cancer. And they're paired up with guides or buddies, and they spend three days at a retreat. Uh, we do two years, two a year, one up at White's Ranch, not far from Logan, and the other one at Fountain Ledge in Altamont, uh, Utah. And uh, so we take them out in the morning. A lot of them have uh, very advanced cancer. Uh, some have a very difficult time walking, so we can you know, stage it so they don't have to go very far. Probably the majority of them have never fished before. And they're tentative, they're nervous, but we take our time. We don't ask them any questions about their cancer. We just talk about fishing. And by lunchtime, you know, quite a few of them have hooked into a fish. And you see those sort of furrowed brows change into a smile and they spend time at lunchtime talking about, and they call it courageous conversations about cancer, talking about what cancer has done to them. We fish with them in the afternoon. And by the afternoon of that day, I'd say, at least on this trip, every single man had caught a trout, a beautiful trout. And they're a little bit suntanned, and they come in, and then we take off the next morning and fish. And by the end of that time, they've completely forgotten their cancer. Um, in fact, I worked with three different men, and all of them said, you know, geez, while I was fishing, I didn't even think about being sick. But they also get, and I think this is the beautiful thing, they get pretty cocky. It's like the first day, it's pretty quiet. By the second day, it's like, well, I stuck this trout, this big hog, and tried to get him to the net. Man, he had broad shoulders, and Metcalf had a hard time landing him. And I'm thinking, is this not a beautiful thing? <laughs> and at the end of it, we all clasp hands and and uh, say, fish on, you know, be well. And it's very emotional for me. And I was a participant many years ago there, and it really um, changed the way I thought about how men don't talk about their health. I mean, I think women do such a better job of it but we're guys. It's just not what we do. And yet in these, in these circles of courageous conversations, it is profoundly, profoundly touching. So I've been volunteering for them every year since. Let's take a brief break. And when we come back, I want to talk about that first experience. You write about that. In fact, that's the first piece in the book here. We're talking with Jeff Metcalf. Uh, he's author most recently of Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters out uh, from University of Utah Press. More with Jeff Metcalf following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. 
This is Science by the Slice. Bark worse than bite? That pointy thing sticking out of a bee or wasp? It's technically known as a sting, even though most of us call it a stinger. Technicalities aside, USU entomologists report the length of a sting may indicate how badly it will hurt. In a study of 14 families of wasps, ants, and bees, Aggie scientists found the longer the sting, the worse the pain, but the lower the toxicity. Insects with short stings may carry more venom. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June of this year. We're back with Jeff Metcalf. He is a professor of English at uh, University of Utah, and he's author uh, previously of Requiem for the Living. He's author of a play, A Slight Discomfort, and uh, most recent collection is Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. And uh, he's our guest for the hour. Grateful to have him uh, with us. He's reaching us from, uh, from Idaho. Uh, one of those beautiful uh, spots. Um, so, Jeff Metcalf, before the break, uh, you talked about how you now volunteer on a regular basis uh, for this organization. Tell us the name of the organization again. It's called Real Recovery. Real Recovery. And it's very easy to, Real Recovery, and it's very easy to find on the Internet. All you have to type is type in is Real Recovery. And I really encourage any men there to uh, take advantage of this. It's, uh, you asked me earlier why I fish. Well, fish don't live in ugly places. <laughs> and, uh, the two places we take them for the local chapter in Utah are exquisitely beautiful. Mm. So uh, anyway, I, I've been fortunate and humbled every time I go there. You know, I might be feeling as I'm driving up, I'm kind of reflective about my own situation. And, uh, you know, maybe at the times where my prognosis was a little bit difficult for me to handle, you know, I go there, I fish with these men and realize how, how fortunate I have been to steal the mm-hmm. kind of time I've been able to steal. So I want to talk a little bit about that first time. This is up in uh, near Altamont, I guess, and I'm... I'm uh, yes, it's Falcon, Le- it's a Falcon Ledge in Altamont, Utah. It's beautiful, high desert country. Beautiful area. I grew up in Bernal, so I'm familiar with the, that university. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Area, and it's uh, people that drive only on US-40 get the wrong idea about the Uona Basin. You, you have to go north toward the Uona Mountains. You get some beautiful little towns there. Altamont is one such. Uh, so you, you went out, I, I think, with a mistaken idea that you were going to be a volunteer, not a participant, right? In the, oh, absolutely. In this circle. Absolutely. I mean, it was... Uh, you know, I'd read about this. I'd uh, filled out an application online. They wanted to know if you were a participant or if you could be a buddy, a guide, so to speak. It was really strange because I, um, you know, my gosh, I've spent a lot of time, uh, you know, teaching people how to cast. And I thought, you know, this is the way I can give back. So I threw a bunch of waders into the car and a bunch of fly rods because I knew they were just starting out. And uh, I figured I'd be able to help out. And when I got there, I told them who I was, and told them I had some fly rods and waders, and that I was really excited to be doing this. And they kind of checked me in and said, you know, I think we have a problem here because we have you down as a participant. I said, I actually signed up to be a guide. And they counted stuff up and looked and said, well, that's, that's kind of 
going to foul stuff up because then we'll have more guides and participants. And uh, it also says that you have prostate cancer. And I said, well, I, well, I do, but um, I really would be happy to be a guide. And it's interesting because the guides like sleep up in the hills and the participants get beautiful rooms inside this lodge. And they said, well, let us just show you where your room would be. So they took me upstairs in this beautiful, beautiful lodge and uh, showed me this room, and it was a suite overlooking this big, beautiful pond. And I saw a trout rise over by a dead tree, and I went, you know what? I think that'll be perfect. I'm I'm actually pretty sick, and I this makes a lot of sense to me, so I ended up being a participant. <laughs> but what really surprised me, Tom, was that I had not uh, planned on being so completely moved by that process, the sort of the way real recovery gets men to talk about themselves. Um, you know, we begin by uh, talking about um, the truths about our own cancer. Uh, and I thought, you know, this is kind of corny. Um, you know, began with, so tell us uh, what kind of car you really love, what you drove in high school, and that was easy for us all to do. And then finally he said, I'm going to invite all of you in these three days to share your truth about cancer. And the more you share this truth with others, the more freedom you will eventually have. And by the end of that morning session, I uh, I was glad I was there as a participant. The, you've uh, This line really struck me. You say, silence in carrying the weight of our cancers had not served us well. It's talking about the, the men. Men don't... You know, it's well known in general. Men don't communicate as well as women. I, I wonder why that is. We're not socialized that way. We're guys. We're we're not far away from being, you know, uh, cavemen. You know, it's just a bit, talking about our. I think there's some misnomer or misconception that by talking about uh, our health, we we are weaker. For that, and I, you know, I thought about that as the day, the two days unfolded into the final day, and I was thinking, you know what? If I ever get a chance to talk about this, I'm going to talk about it. And it's really interesting because when, you know, I told some men uh, who I play tennis with uh, that had prostate cancer, we'd always play tennis and then talk afterwards. One of them noticed that my there was no hair on my legs. Well, I undergone radiation, and I was on a female hormone. He said, what are you doing, Metcalf, shaving your legs now? And I, I just lied. I just said, uh, well, <laughs> uh, bike racing, citizens racing. I'm, I'm into bike racing right now. And I didn't say, yeah, I'm undergoing this. So the next time we got together, I mentioned it. Now, I've been playing tennis with these guys for 20-plus years, and three of them had had prostate cancer and had radical prostatectomies and never uttered a word and I thought that's it you know I've got to blow this trumpet and talk about this whenever I get a chance so coincidentally uh, I read a short piece at this uh, writer series in Salt Lake um, called City Art where they invite sort of popular writers of the year to come back and, and do a reading and I had a piece on actually kind of a funny piece on having cancer and I, I wasn't going to read it but in the last minute, I thought, well, you've got a full auditorium here. Take out for a ride. And at the end of it, 
it was absolutely quiet. I know how to do readings, and uh, it was kind of a funny piece, and then it seemed like six hours before anybody responded. I mean, then it was just tumultuous. It was, it was I got a standing ovation, and, uh, and the audience was a dramaturg for Salt Lake Acting Company, who I'd done some work with, and he said, do you think there's... You think you could turn this into a play? And if so, I commission you right now. And I agreed, and I ended up writing a really a play that's about as much a comedy about cancer, about the medical situation, as it is about the seriousness of it. And it's called The Slight Discomfort, and it's traveled the world, and it's been in seven different countries now, and 15 different states, or maybe 16. Um, and it's been on the road since 2007. And on March 23rd of 2019, the Royal Danish Theater purchased the rights to a full year. And I'll be going over there to see it done in Danish. Wow. I just think it's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, you know, it's very interesting because the last probably 30 performances I have done, the actor who played me, it's a one-man play, the actor who played me moved out of town. And I found myself doing my per- first performance in Las Vegas and the second one in New York. And I honestly, to be honest, Tom, I felt much more comfortable performing it than being in the audience watching it performed. Well, why do you think that is? I don't know. I, mm. You know, I don't. I think, I think you get a lot of time in the audience to sort of reflect, to rewrite it in your head, to see if there's something I would have changed. But when you're on stage, I mean, by the first maybe 10 lines of the play, I know whether it's going to work or not. And then I'm completely committed to it, and I feel like I'm surfing. And I really enjoy it. I mean, hmm. to hear men laugh out loud about some some sort of similarity we, we share about, you know, not being willing to talk, you know, because we're manly men, <laughs> um, you know, is a wonderful thing. And then I always do a Q&A afterwards, and you know, I have men that come up and say, man, I, I, I one, one guy in Cayenta, Utah, I did a performance down there. Uh, I was standing there as people were coming in, and I introduced, I just said, my name's Jeff Metcalf, and he introduced himself, and he said, did your wife drag you here? And I went, why did yours? And he said, yeah. She said, this was a comedy about cancer, and there's nothing funny about cancer. And I didn't want to tell him I was a playwright. And in about 10 minutes, I was going to perform and <laughs> perform the play. But I said, listen, I know this guy that wrote this, and he's actually pretty funny. And I've seen it before. And I'll tell you what, I'll make you a bet. If you don't laugh, I'll take you to lunch anywhere you want to go. And he went, yeah, you're on. And he was in the third row, dead center. And by the sixth line of the play, he fell apart. And at the end, and when, at the end he came up to me. And just gave me a big hug and said, I have not laughed in 13 years. Hmm. And it was one of those hugs where it's like, okay, I think this is enough. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. But I thought, this is a good thing when we can laugh. Hmm. And it's a good thing. You know what I'd love to do? Yeah, I'd love to outlive my own play. I'd love to be scheduled to do a performance some someplace in the country and have them say, you know, we're going we're gonna to have to cancel this because they have a cure for it now. And I think, what a wonderful thing. But you know what? It relates to women as much, because the first performance, I had a talk back uh, after it and asked the women, I said, you know, I kind of feel like this is exclusively men, but in a way I don't. 
would you mind weighing in? And almost every woman in the audience put their hand up, and I called on the first lady, and she said, you know, I want you to know that I have a prostate. And I thought, oh, my God, she must have flunked flunked health class. And she said, and I'm sitting next to my prostate, my husband here, who, uh, who has prostate cancer. But the minute you started that play, you know, I've had breast cancer, and I forgot it was about, you know, I forgot it was about prostate cancer because it's not. It's about the human condition. And I thought, you know what? I think I have something here. And so far that's uh, panned out to be the truth. I wonder if you talk a little bit about the the humor, you know, the, the very title. Whenever I read or think about the title, a slight discomfort, I smile and I think, well, should I be doing this? Because it's it's about it's about Jeff Metcalf's prostate cancer, but but it's it's a it's a funny play. Um, but you know, serious things. Uh, you you've said that um, with the humor, you could keep your distance of sorts, right? From this, it's true. It's true, and I, I'm actually glad you you brought that up. If you're of the age where you would uh, be getting a physical and get your digital exam of your prostate. Um, I don't know what your doctor said, but they they always would say to me, uh, you're going to feel a slight discomfort. Or worse than that, we're going to feel a slight discomfort here. And I said, I'm going to do this to you after you do it to me. And it's like, oh, no, gosh, no, I didn't mean that, you know. But I thought, what a perfect title because it's in so many ways you feel discomforted when you, you know, you're in a medical exam, particularly if you're a guy. We don't know how to do that stuff well. But when I was first diagnosed, um, and this is about men talking, uh, my daughter was getting ready to take off uh, to study in Italy on an exchange program to the University of Utah, and I hadn't been, I hadn't had a biopsy yet, and I didn't say anything to my wife. Well, because I'm a manly man, and uh, you know, I was going to get a biopsy a month later. In the meantime, I was going to France and do a writing workshop and then uh, attend a conference on literature and theater in Croatia, and uh, I thought I would tell them when I got back. And as you mentioned, there's a line that says, silence did not serve me well. And when I finally told my wife, she was very upset, you know. She said, my God, that was a month ago. I said, "I, I, I know I'm sorry. And she said, we don't do this to each other, Jeff. We don't. How do you think Bailey will feel now? I didn't want to tell my daughter because that I might have cancer because she probably would have stayed and I wanted her to be in a bigger world. So anyway, um, when I fessed up, I mean, I felt horrible. I really did. And I, I think that's when I firmly resolved that I would, that I would not hold anything back from there on. So, you know, my journals were kind of dark and angry at first, but then there'd be this light, this comedy. For example, there was a point, I don't know if you had ever had a, or a hospital gown, but I don't care what you do, no matter how you try to tie it, well, your derriere always hangs out of the back. And I made a mental note to myself, redesign medical gowns, hospital gowns, and make yourself a fortune or tire. And then as I kind of thumbed through it, it was just moments of pure comedy, and I thought, this is the thing that's going to save you. And so that plays heavily in the play. Um, it's like discomfort. 
And you can uh, you can find out information about that at a slightdiscomfort.com, by the way. That's uh, correct. We're uh, we're talking with Jeff Metcalf. Uh, he is author of uh, previously of the play. Uh, we've talked about that, a slight discomfort. Requiem for the Living is a previous collection, and the and the latest collection is called Backcast: Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. We'll take another brief break and be back with Jeff Metcalf. Roger Daltrey, who has fronted The Who since he formed the band over 50 years ago, has lived through a lot, playing Woodstock in the Super Bowl, making rock an art form, and losing two of his bandmates along the way. Roger Daltrey is here to tell you more and how he thinks he survived. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, the USU Center for Women and Gender and the USU Access and Diversity Center for sponsoring the UPR original series LGBTQ Off the Grid. Find out how you can become a sponsor of a UPR original series by calling 435-797-3138. Happy 65th anniversary, UPR. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in June of this year. We're back with Jeff Metcalf. He is a professor of English at University of Utah. His latest uh, book is out from University of Utah Press. It's it's called Backcast, Fly Fishing and Other Such Matters. And uh, he is our guest for the hour. Grateful to to have him on the line here. So, Jeff Metcalf, I'm uh, wondering about, uh, take you back to these uh, circles of of men. Um, So, you know, part of it is uh, teaching men to fly fish, get them out into nature, but also to... Form a circle and and open up about about your cancer. What 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 kinds of concerns do men open up about? What uh, what's what's on their minds when you get them beyond their favorite car? You know, to it's a it's yeah. a step by step process to get them to open up. You know, it's interesting because I thought, oh wow, this is this is going to be something uh, when we began that way. But quite quite suddenly, we started to go deeper, and you know, for example. One of the questions was, you know, how does cancer affect you? And uh, I mean, the response that we we uh, we got in the circle was amazing. There was a tree trunk of a of a man there named Ed, who was world champion arm wrestler. I mean, his arms were bigger than my thighs, and he was kind of a frightening-looking guy, and he was just got very emotional and all teary, and said, "You know, that I that you know, I feel broken, and I I feel like you know I'm I'm not attractive to my wife, and my boys are growing up, and I feel weak in front of them. And there've been a lot of times when I've I've thought about taking my own life, and it's like, I mean, it just silenced everybody. But what he did in that brutal honesty." was to give us permission to talk about ourselves. And then the next person to speak was his cousin, who was a two-time uh, tour of duty Vietnam vet, who had previously said in one of the, one of the questions earlier, you know, I don't, I don't believe in any of this touchy-feely stuff. I'm just here to support Ed. And he just broke down. And, uh, you know, worked with the railroad for 30 years and retired. I mean, a tough guy. And just told his story about, you know, how he always thought if, if he was going to pass away, it would probably be an accident in the yard or something like that, or certainly Vietnam. He'd had a, a pretty 
dark, dark tour, two tours there, and and he said he just didn't expect this coming, and he has no control over it, and, and that you know he was there to you know support Ed, but he realized he was there to talk about himself, you know, touchingly, brutally raw, and um, immediately, you know, sort of created a brotherhood for us, if you will. And that, that's that's important, uh, I think, right? Uh, that that brotherhood. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And by the end of it, we we were a family of sorts, a, a broken family. You know, I'm thinking about this. I think I went seven or eight years ago for the first time, and of the 14 men um, that were in that first group, I think there's still only three of us living. I mean, so you're acutely aware of, well, your own backcast. You know, the things behind you, there, there are no guarantees. I, I can say that all of us probably have more time behind us than we have in front of us. And there are no guarantees. And um, I think we're more acutely in tune to that than most. You uh, Of that original group, uh, you've, you've lost several, right? Yeah, I think out of 14, all but three. Mm, yeah. And what's interesting is they had the ceremony the last day uh now it's on the first day where you're given a fishing vest and they're the names of men from all over the country and they sign it and where they're from and stuff like that and so in a very almost a sacred way you're carrying those men with you as you go out to fish it's a pretty touching moment i saw names on some of the vests this last time when i was a buddy that i had fish with it are no longer around what does that what does that mean to, i guess remembering right remembering is powerful it's remembering it's carrying you know it's carrying those people's stories in your bones uh, you know and it's it's a profoundly deep experience i wonder if i could have you read another uh, section this is uh, page 52 over to 53 this is from a piece called death song uh, from uh, Jeff oh, McCaff's uh, book called Backcast. Slowly, the fish began to lose strength. It was my obligation to remain in the water and see this to the end, to offer a fish song and an apology for how the day would end. I suspect it was a surprise to both of us. For some reason, I thought of two stanzas from a Theodore Rothke poem. The title escaped me, and I couldn't put the poem in any sort of context. I wondered perhaps if the lines had surfaced at just the moment they needed to be summoned. And I spoke the words to the cutthroat. Such owly pleasures. Fish, come first, sweet bird. Skin's the least of me. Kiss this. Is the eternal near, fondling, I hear the sounds of hands. Can the bones breathe? This grave has an ear. It's still enough for the knock of a worm. I feel more than a fish. Ghost, come closer. The river instructs and speaks to me in a tongue of gurgling water and mystery. There are parallels to my own life. I know this clearly. We are all born of water, and what happens to us is uncertain. And let it remain so. 
I'm prepared. That's a hard section for me to read. <laughs> um, so when you're out there, um, you, you know, think about these parallels. What is what does that uh, that do for you? Well, I think it. I think it's a reminder that you know certainly that we're here for only a finite amount of time, and you know, in the great Mandela of things, I'm a very small a small piece of this beautiful ballet called Life. I was thinking about it um, the other day when I was fishing, and I started laughing. I thought about something that a fellow fisherman had told me one time. He said, you know, Metcalf, i tell you something. I wouldn't mind being a fish. I wouldn't last very very long, but I believe in reincarnation. So I'd come back. I'd get a chance to come back as something else. And I started laughing because I said, you know, I got to tell you something, Max. It would be the same thing for me because I, you know, I don't. Fish are so wonderfully complex. You might have the right bug, but one size too small, and they pass it up. The biggest bug, bug in my fly box. If you threw it out there, and I was a fish, even if there was no no fly resembling on the water, I would eat it. Why eat those teeny little twenty sixes when I could eat a hamburger? And I would be gone. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I like that idea of coming back. And actually, although it was sent in jest, I thought, you know, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing, you know, in reincarnation? And I kind of have embraced a lot of philosophies through this journal. Hmm. There's a beautiful through line um, in, the, you know, among several in the book in this collection, Backcast. Um, Centered around a, a physical object. There's there's a, a reel, right? That your grandfather right. gave you, and you've kept that. And you uh, you're you're now. Uh, I think uh, you talk about teaching your grandson to fish. Absolutely. In fact, you were asking me um, what I was doing up here in Stanley, Idaho, and my two grandsons, both of whom I did not expect to live to see, uh, will be coming up here. I have two of them. Finn, who's four, and Jack, who's almost seven, as he'll remind you. And uh, he caught his first fish when he was three years old up here in Yankee Fork. And uh, it was pretty cute leaving uh, just before I left. We had breakfast together, and he said, you know, I think, I think Finn's old enough to catch a fish now. I mean, because when I, was, when I was little, I caught a fish, too, and I'm thinking, how cute is this? He's six, and now his brother, who's four, he gives him permission to catch a fish. But anyway, that reel has traveled with me since my grandfather um, took me fishing for the very first time. It was uh, it was one that he gave me, and I passed it down, uh, you know, to my son and daughter who I taught how to fly fish. And then on down, um, it'll go to the boys when they're old enough to take care of it. I mean, there's something about being connected to those gifts. And, uh, you know, I can't wait for Finn to catch a trout. There is nothing like it. It's brilliant. You, you say that, um, you said this in um, Requiem for the Living as well, but uh, in, uh, in the essay Split Second, in this book, Backcast, th- this one line uh, strikes me. You say um, y- your survival to this point of your cancer is uh, in great part due to several factors, good medical attention, and then you talk about the the water, 
But in the middle here, this is what I wanted to have you talk about briefly. A fierce and often annoying trait I have of being a very vociferous advocate for my own health care. Oh, absolutely. I learned this immediately. You know, um, in many ways, I feel like hospitals and doctors actually work for insurance companies and not for the patient. And quite rapidly, I decided that, you know, uh, I would ask a lot of questions. I wouldn't take no for an answer. I wouldn't be dismissed. Uh, I would become really uh, the sort of person that you don't want to have come into your office. But it has paid off. I mean, there have been several times um, I've sort of been counted out. And one of, the, one of my doctors said, you know, uh, I had a prognosis that w- was not particularly good about a year and a half ago. And my uh, radiologist, who I absolutely adore, uh, had sent me an email after an email I sent him and said, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time with this one. And he said, Metcalf, this is the email. It said, Metcalf, how many times have you been in doctor's offices where they've had furrowed brows and, and you know, given you a diagnosis? Let me tell you something. You're still here. The idea that any doctor would have the audacity to do such a thing, predict how long you might live as pure poppycock. We have a relationship, your cancers show up, and I kill them, and I love to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh, how did that make me feel? <laughs> you know, and that's it. I've, I've been a burden, but many of those doctors have become friends in my journey through it, and I think in part my own advocacy has, has certainly kept me alive. Finally, uh, we've talked about the conversations that's happened, the valuable conversations among men in these circles. I want to end with conversations that happen in your family. You, you've talked about a hiccup that happened. Your wife told you don't don't go silent on me ever again, right? I'm sure you, right. I'm sure you repented there. And and and, um, but I, I wonder about those conversations. Uh, tell us how they unfold, and, and those are very important. I'm sure. Yeah, you know, it, it was it was interesting. I mean, she was, you know, I think to some degree, you know, she understood where I was coming from. I mean. It wasn't going to hurt one way or the other. I mean, I, I, I looked like a really bad defense lawyer talking to her, trying to plead my case, you know. Well, I, I'd be back the night that they got back, my son and my wife, from taking our daughter to New York to get on a flight. It was also the night that I was uh, had to fast and not go in, you know. I had to go in on an empty stomach the next day for my biopsy, and... Uh, so I cooked them a beautiful meal, and my wife said, you're not eating anything, and that's when I confessed, and she was very upset, you know, and said, you know, frankly, she just said, how would you feel if I had breast cancer? I didn't, didn't say anything to you. You didn't need to be stoic. And from then on, it's been very open. I remember telling my son, who at the time was 14, and, you know, there are no rules on how this how you talk about that. I was just very blunt. I said, this has happened. I I don't know how to tell you to react. I mean, if you feel like you have to cry, don't be embarrassed ever. And, uh, you know, I, I think that might have been too much of an overload for him. Um, you know, so he kind of, you know, backed away from it. And we were later able to talk about it. And, you know, my daughter was in Italy, so I wrote her a very long email and just sort of explained it to her. And, you know, she offered to come home, but I said, Bailey, the really, the reason I didn't was because it, it's important to live in that other world and see 
how other cultures live and be immersed in it. And she got that. And I'm eternally grateful that she did. I would have felt horrible if she came home. You know, there's nothing she could have done. But I appreciated the fact that she understood what I was trying to say to her. So I probably have two or three men that call me every month from people I know that say, would you mind talking to them about your experience? And I do not hesitate to do that, Tom. I I am honored to do that and very pleased that I can serve them in that way. Well, we've been talking with Jeff Metcalf. He is a professor of English at University of Utah. And uh, previously, he's author of a play, the, A Slight Discomfort. You can find information on that at the website, aslightdiscomfort.com. A previous uh, collection was titled Requiem for the Living. That was the winner of the 2012 Utah Division of Arts and Museums Original Writing Competition. The latest uh, collection is out from University of Utah Press, uh, Backcast, Fly Fishing, and Other Such Matters. Uh, Jeff Metcalf, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Tom. Thank you very much for having me on the air. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Let's imagine you make raspberry jam to die for. It started as a hobby. Though every time you take a jar to neighbors, they exclaim, you could sell this stuff. Maybe you could. Is it just a dream? How do you get started? What do you do next? It turns out there's an app for that. Well, in a sense. There's a state program sponsored by the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food for that. It's called Utah's Own, and it supports local food producers. As a marketing arm, what we provide for our food members is if you're a startup business, you can come in and and talk to somebody about how the steps to take. Um, We'll give you uh, social media help. We'll take, um, we have photography, free free photography for, for them to take pictures of their food to make their banners. That's Laurie Cerrone. She started out in her own kitchen making tortilla chips. In 2015, she took on another role as a program director for Utah's Own. You've noticed the bold Utah's Own label on product packaging at the grocery store. To receive the label, a company must meet three eligibility requirements. First, It must produce a food, beverage, or skin care product that incorporates agriculture ingredients from Utah. Second, it must be registered with the Utah Department of Agriculture and Food Regulatory Department. And third, it must have a valid business license. When we pick up that bottle of salad dressing with a Utah's own label, we know we're getting a product with local, regulated ingredients from an accountable company. Useful validations to be sure. However, from a director's point of view, Cerrone describes something more. Utah Zone is more than just about putting the tags on the shelves. We love our food community. We do everything we can to market and help our food community grow. But that includes farmers, that includes the meat industry, the dairy industry, and food manufacturers, distilleries. I mean, we have a a large group of people And really, it's about trying to get them as much exposure as possible. Added exposure via marketing helps local businesses find their footing and survive in a competitive industry. Going further, Utah's own also drives exposure via industry networking to help local businesses connect with others and thrive. For instance, in 2017, Utah's own sponsored an event to connect members of the food community 
essentially speed dating for farmers and food manufacturers. Once they got talking, the magic happened. A food producer who prefers a specific variety of garlic talked with a garlic farmer who is now planting the variety she needs. A baker known for his peach tarts met a peach farmer. The two were located only two blocks apart from each other. Utah's own is all about facilitating these connections for food businesses, notes Cerrone. Discussions on volume and cost progress, but do so within a deeper person-to-person relationship. The same holds true, she feels, for consumers choosing a product with the Utah's own label. While buying local benefits our economy, we also gain insight into where our food comes from, and we have the chance to put people behind the products. These are actual people that live in our community, and they are working really hard to make this. And wow, wouldn't it be great to be a part of that story and be a part of their business growing. When I stand up in front of a room full of local manufacturers and farmers, I really honestly can hardly talk. I I mean, I know their world because I've been in their world, but it is a room full of the most courageous people that you could ever meet because these are people who have a dream, and they just don't have the dream. They make this dream come true. Looking deeper, the Utah's own label may be on the packaging, but it's Utah's own people who make it great. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at UPR.org.